HIV is a race-specific bioweapon. There has been global cooling for the last eight or nine years. And when you add up all those dates in the Bible and the six days of creation, you only get thousands of years. There's nothing in observational science that contradicts that. What? I only recently found out what twerking is. You know where you stand with a cat. If you fell down dead, it's going to eat you. So if Miley Cyrus became a zombie, then she should still know how to twerk. Now your dog will probably eat you too. Hello heathens, you're listening to The Science of Sarcasm, a podcast where we examine the worst examples of bad science in politics, pop culture and the media. Every episode brings you a new guest from the world of science and education to discuss their work and share their pet pseudoscientific peeves. Today's guest is James from the Jim the Evo channel and creator of the History of Infection series. How you doing, James? I'm very well, how are you doing? Ah, not too bad. So tonight we are going to be talking all things zombies. Yeah, we are, yes. <laughs> And, as always, the first section of this show, just before we get into that, is news and nonsense. So I bring in one good scientific news story and one god-awful one from the internet. So which would you like first, James, the good or the bad news? Uh, I'll take the good news first. Good news. Zombie virus research could make vaccines last longer, be more available, and save billions of dollars. Researchers at Portland State University have found a way to preserve viruses in a glassy, dissolvable substance, a technique that could extend the shelf life of vaccines and allow for storage at room temperatures. Have you heard about this one, James? No, I haven't actually. That's pretty cool. Ken Stedman and James Laidler show that viruses can be covered with a silicate coating that keeps them in a state of suspended animation. The coating harmlessly melts away when it's ingested by or injected into a living host. Stedman nicknamed the process zombification because the undead viruses come back to life once the coating has been removed. That's pretty cool, actually, yeah. And it's a big, it's a big problem, um, distributing vaccines around to places where obviously you don't have refrigeration. It's, you know, there's a bit of a correlation. The places that need the vaccinations tend to be the places that don't have access to electricity, running water. So it's, it's pretty cool. Apparently, Stedman and Laidler discovered the viruses when they were taking samples from hot springs in America. Silica from the hot springs protected the viruses from drying out and allowed them to stay viable outside their natural environment. So basically, they, like, saram wrapped these, the viruses. (laughs) And so they've all been vacuum-sealed, ready to infect someone. I'm quite impressed that this is a sort of story that could go horribly, horribly wrong in sort of, like, the Daily Mail or some other newspaper for lack of better words um like these zombie viruses researchers and stuff i'm I'm quite impressed this has come off so positively i know a lot of the times when you see say the measles outbreak that's taking place in california a lot yeah. of the anti-vaxxers are coming out and saying well look a lot of these patients who have contracted it they had been vaccinated yeah how big an issue is it even in the developed world actually keeping a vax a live vaccine long enough to have an effect it's it's it obviously depends on the vaccination because obviously there's there's a whole range when you when we we speak about vaccines we're talking about easily 30 40 different vaccinations that can be taken or had and each of those has its own different ways of being stored we we are lucky that we live in such you know a, a pleasant climate and um have access to great medical technology here so it's it's not a huge it's not a huge thing here i mean if it'd be it'd be handy if there was a massive outbreak which we can talk about again later of some virus that had to be dealt with very quickly and you could actually take these things as the field but barring any sort of natural disaster like that i don't i don't think the western world would uh need the technology quite so much it, it would be more the developing developing countries that would really benefit from it. I suppose that what the people whose vaccines don't work really have to worry about is coming into contact with someone who hasn't been vaccinated at all. Yeah, It's yeah. a much bigger uh, issue. I mean, herd immunity, um, which gets used in this type quite a lot, is, um, is a fantastic principle. But obviously, vaccinations aren't 100%. Nothing, nothing is 100%. And pointing your fingers like, oh look, these people, these people have been vaccinated, and going, oh, they're still getting sick. Vaccinations don't work. That's that's bollocks. Um, I should probably use a more politically sound word than that, but uh, it's 
it's just pointing to things going yeah that that this shows that the whole situation is wrong we know we know for a fact that people who have been vaccinated do better than those who don't it's the simple answer okay well that leaves the bad news let's see missouri state university may ban nerf guns after 911 call over zombie shootout game <laughs> Missouri State University is considering banning all Nerf guns from campus after students playing a zombie role-playing game led a professor to call 911 to report an active shooter. More than 500 students carry Nerf guns to play a tag with a post-apocalyptic twist. Students dressed as zombies to live another day, get tagged and you're a zombie yourself. So basically there were people running around this campus with bright yellow and bright pink guns or dressed as zombies. And a professor saw it, locked down his classroom, and called the cops. Yeah. There's, uh, I'm not sure which, so was that Missouri? Uh, yes. There's, I'm not sure if it's Missouri or another university, but they have, like, a campus-wide, and obviously, um, if you're in the UK, campuses in the UK tend to be a bit smaller, but American campuses can be ginormous, you know, the size, easily the size of an English town with hundreds of thousands of students. And there's one university, the name escapes me now, that has this massive zombie warfare going for days and days and days. And they use Nerf guns and Nerf swords to uh, fight off the zombie horde. I've always wanted to uh, go along and play, and play with one of these. But um, the idea, like, it's not really zombie related, it's more gun control related. The fact that that is an issue, that the fact that, oh, there's someone who might have a gun on campus, is just... it. <laughs> I quite liked like your last podcast with Aaron Rahn when he said, you know, I don't want someone else's stupidity to stop me from owning a gun. I fully like that. That's actually quite a good argument. I like that as an argument. But if you live in a culture where someone carrying a toy Nerf gun can spark, you know, an entire well-meaning fun game to be completely ruined by jittery professors, it just it seems to be there's something wrong with the culture there. Yeah, I think I need to point out that it says in the article people participating in this thing are banned from altering their gun or painting it to look like a real gun. So it has to be the original bright day glow yeah. colours that a Nerf the, gun comes yeah, in. yellow and blue sort of high-vis colours. Yeah. This week's news and nonsense was brought to you by Bacteria. Did you know there's over a pound of bacteria in you right now? You're never alone when you have bacteria. Okay, so now it is time to take our audience questions. I'm going to take these in order as they appeared on the YouTube comments section. The first one is from Valerie Tozer. Can alien zombie-like species really happen? Life elsewhere in space could be vast, but not many talk about us bringing something back to Earth. What's the danger about exploring other worlds? Uh, I think that's basically... Are humans in danger of some xenopathogens? If we ever decide to travel off-world? It's a very good question. Um, my initial answer would be no. And this... this I'd hate to be proved wrong about this. <laughs> but um, most most pathogens are highly adapted to their host. So this is the reason why, say, vets don't wear masks when they operate. The chance of your dog or your little kitten getting uh, a human pathogen or vice versa is quite low because the pathogens that infect us and the pathogens that infect them have evolved to infect them and infect us. Our immune systems are different, our cells are different. So the same argument can be applied to extraterrestrial pathogens. Something that might kill, let's say, a Martian wouldn't necessarily even be able to get inside ourselves. It's it's not just a case of, oh, I can attack the cell because it's a cell. It it uses specific um, products to get inside and cause damage or get inside and not cause damage this being said a lot of the most horrible diseases we know of things like ebola um they make us sick because we're not adapted to them they're not adapted to maximize their fitness within us they they basically infect us by mistake but i i think the gulf between alien life and human life and human diseases and alien diseases would just be too big to um, cause us to get infected. That being said, if it's a massive sort of like actual physical size parasite, then we should probably be scared. 
What yeah. about something um, non-specific? Like uh, we went in, let's like on Prometheus, mm. where they all take off their helmets. Yeah. What would happen, say, if there was some kind of fungal spore in the air, and it wasn't very picky? All it wanted was somewhere warm, somewhere wet, and with lots of material to build yeah. off of. Um, yeah, that that would that would probably work if it wasn't if it wasn't particularly picky about what it was doing. If it was not infecting the cells or using the cells in some way, like if it was just growing on the surface and degrading tissue beneath, that could probably work. Prometheus is a bit of a bad example because the that that doesn't work in this case because they they engineered human life, so they, they're, oh, they're on the you're same. Right. Yeah, they're on the same. Um, evolutionary trajectory so they, there is a pop more of a possibility yeah. of Prometheus because um, those all those 10 foot tall albino dudes were genetically yeah. human they're genetically identical to humans yeah okay so. uh, next question I'm not sure if you'll know the answer to this one it's from beautiful booties of America nice <laughs> do zombies know how to twerk um <laughs> I only recently found out what twerking is I'm I'm woefully sheltered from popular culture um yes if if they knew how to twerk when they were non-zombie then i'd say they still do so if miley cyrus name drop um became a zombie then she should still know how to twerk depending on your folklore of what a zombie is okay although i would have doubted they just lacked the motor function although i suppose it depends on it's it's, if it's one of the new running zombies or a shambling zombie well they kind of are twerking i suppose if uh of my understanding of what twerking is. I think it looks more like a really bad Harlem Shake. Yes, yeah. yeah. Just disturbing. <laughs> Official Order of Illuminati Gunru 666. Okay, first of all, can you come up with a longer name, please? Mm. Are zombies evil? Uh, off the top of my head, no. It's like asking, is, is uh, a lion evil? It, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't do what it does for the fact it knows that there's a, a difference between its positive actions and its negative actions. So you can't you can't be evil without, in some way, comprehending what you're doing is is negative, in my opinion. Like um, a a cancer could be talked about as being evil and horrible, but it's actually not evil. It doesn't doesn't have the ability to comprehend what it's doing is hurting something. That's when something becomes evil, when it knows its actions will negatively affect it, and it does those actions for the sake of negatively affecting something. Okay, next question. Pucho616, I think it is. How do you sell your soul to a zombie devil? Dude, <laughs> is that even a thing? <laughs> I don't know. I would guess give it brains. Yeah, it seems to be the one thing they're interested in. I suppose you have to sign the uh, the agreement in CF fluid, CSF fluid, like the spinal fluid, as opposed to blood. And anyway, I don't think we can do that because I was looking through Google's terms of service, and it appears I've already given them mine. <laughs> I think Apple or Google are gonna have to fight over for mine. Yeah, their end user agreements are ridiculous. I'm just waiting for the phone call for the centipede thing to happen. Okay, the next one is Dahi Dublin. Are there any pathogens or parasites, etc., that cause behavioural changes in humans that could be called zombie-like? Um, tediously, yes. So there's... Um, in humans, there's, there's two I can think of off the top of my head that sort of alter your behaviour. Um, there is toxoplasmosis, which makes you a bit batty. It doesn't make you sort of groan like a zombie and walk around. Um, there's also Kuru, which um, I think uh, yeah, Miles did a good video about zombie facts recently, actually. Um, so Kuru is a term for a degenerative disease that came from uh, Papua New Guinea. It's so, a prion disease, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's a prion disease. So basically, they they found that these certain members of tribes were getting this sort of neurological deficit quite quite rapidly oncoming, and they're um, they're trying to work out if it was a virus or a bacteria or even a fungus. And when they started doing tests, they found actually how how small they had to go to exclude the pathogen was way below the limit of what a virus would be able to get through. So this, whatever they were dealing with was smaller than a virus, which sort of... I mean, viruses, people are on the side of are they alive or not, but anything smaller probably isn't going to even be 
close to that argument. And they eventually found it was actually it was a protein. Um, and it's the same protein that causes scrapey or BSC, the bovine spongy encephalitis. So basically it's um, this, this protein makes the same protein of itself fold into a into a certain shape so what it does is it gets inside and then it causes a chain reaction once it gets to a certain level it seems that causes all the other proteins the same protein to, to go into the same structure and this causes horrible problems with the brain essentially the brain begins to dissolve in these big clumps within and obviously you you need your brain um and people basically begin to just disappear cognitively they you know they the parts of them just get taken away essentially their brain is being eaten away by this little protein you see it kind of looks like swiss cheese or a sponge by the yeah. end that's what that's the name the bse is it's spongy spongy form encephalitis uh, encephalitis encephalitis um yeah the the the, the structure of the brain disappears not just on a micro scale on on a on a whole brain scale parts of the brain just dissolve away that's one of the few diseases well that particular disease can cross the species barrier because the mammalian nervous systems are similar enough the proteins are similar enough yeah. between in humans and cattle it's the same protein that gets across cows got it from eating sheep that had it um humans can get it from eating other humans or eating uh, cow material, sheep material that has it. There's also um, elk and deer that have it as well. I think um, we should point out that the cows weren't actually running down sheep in the fields <laughs> and massacring them. This was something they were forced to eat in mm. the actual meal. It contained vinyl material. It was just chopped up bits of sheep, essentially, yeah. like whole sheep, like the bits that no one wanted, and they they just used it to feed the cows again. It's it's a pretty horrible disease, and it's. You know, there was a, there was obviously the big the big BSC scare and BSE scare in the UK, but it's um, there was always this inevitable outcome. Everyone was like, "Oh, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. It wasn't as bad as you know the the media overhyped it and stuff." And well, it might be true the media overhyped it for the time. They didn't really understand the ramifications. What we know now is that there are with most things there's um, there's a genetic prevalence to getting human new variant CJD which is the, the human form of it. If you have a certain genotype, you are more likely to develop your symptoms early. So all, we, all we've seen so far is the people who have so far gotten new variant CJD had the susceptible phenotype on both, both their genes, both the alleles were the same. So we're expecting a wave of people who will have uh, uh, be heterozygote, so have one or the other of these two alleles to come at some point in the future. And then further down the line again, we'll expect the people who are resistant, not immune, just resistant to new variant CJD2 as well, develop the disease. It's debatable whether or not the resistance will be longer than their natural lifespan. So they might actually effectively be immune. We don't know. What we know from Kuru, uh, the one from the Papua New Guinea, is that typically people will develop it before they die, even if they are resistant. Okay, next question from Cass00078. Does becoming a zombie morph your teeth into snake-like syringe fangs or something? What is necessary for a 100% transmission rate through human bites? That's a really good question. So nothing, again, nothing works at 100% it seems. Probably the most transmissible disease, rabies, doesn't seem to actually have a 100% success rate. It's got a very high success rate. If you get bitten by a rabid dog, you should seek treatment. It's, you know, you, your chances are 95% to 99% having it. For a human bite to pass on a zombie-causing virus, let's say, the mouth would have to be completely full of viable viruses. It's really just a numbers game, I think, more than anything. Well, I know The Walking Dead took a slightly different tact yeah. in that everyone on the planet is already infected with a virus which activates when you die and your brain tissue starts to become necrotic. Everyone who dies of anything becomes a zombie in that. And when the zombie bites you, what it's basically doing is giving you septicemia. from the. It's got all this bacteria in its mouth yeah. from the decaying tissue. And so when it bites you, you get blood poisoning and you die uh, from it. And then the virus, which is already there, activates. Yeah. 
I see. So basically, if you could survive that zombie outcome by just having lots of antibiotics. Well, I know in one or giving case, giving out listerine. In, yeah, in one case they did it by amputating a bitten limb, okay. and it worked. Mm. <laughs> I know there's actually. Do you know, know the Komodo dragon? Yeah. It actually hunts like that. It's, it's an this, ambush predator. This is debatable. Is it? I so, thought this was. Yeah, I, I thought th- it was I, you know, science with a capital S. I thought this for a long time as well. And someone, I I spoke to someone who um, was a Komodo dragon expert at a conference a few a few years ago, and he was saying, I think I spoke to someone else recently about this before I forget their name. They were saying basically that it's not necessarily that it's the the causing septicemia. There's also they do have a I'm going to make a mistake. It's either a toxin or a poison, um, one or the other. They have in their bite as well, so they are actually poisoning the the prey not just on uh, the case of getting septicemia. There's a really interesting thing though as well about it because the reason I was talking to this guy because he was looking at how they hunt and who who gets to eat what's killed because obviously it takes several days for some of the bigger animals to drop dead. So the Komodo dragons have to sort of track their prey for so long there's a chance they might lose them. And if all the Komodo dragons on the island just bite whatever goes past them and then something eventually will die in front of them it doesn't matter but if there's competition for the for the kills then interesting things can start happening where you start biting your prey and then parts of your kin will do the hunt and it's it seems there could be all these sort of really interesting interplays going off but the 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 set to see me thing isn't wrong it's just not the only thing in in play okay didn't know that next question well how is it that zombie movies and television shows are so popular all of them seem 100 percent impossible uh, the Walking Dead series claims that sight, hearing, and motor skills remain in a body with a stopped heart or while buried or submerged without food or water, or even without a body. How can so many viewers pretend this is possible in order to get into the series? That's a bit of a terrible question. It's like, <laughs> how can these people have fun? I don't think at any point The Walking Dead's going, this is, this is honestly, this is a definite scientific outcome or what's going to happen if this no. virus infects us. It's it's just fantasy. It's like asking how can people watch Star Trek when they travel faster than the speed of light. Yeah, but this isn't like, say, Prometheus. Prometheus pretended to be doing science. Yeah. Whereas yeah. The Walking Dead, it's a zombie movie. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's like, I don't even expect that much science from Doctor Who anymore. I've just resigned myself to it. At some <laughs> point, you just... They're just having fun. Yeah. I mean, if, if the reason people enjoy it is because it's not normal. Um... If you were to just sort of film normal people and put it on TV... Oh, no, they did that. It's called Big Brother. Um, <laughs> if... Did you ever see Dead Set? No, I, I, I missed that. I don't. I honestly don't watch that much TV, so it's... <laughs> For those who don't know, Dead Set, I think it was a mini-series, where basically the Big Brother house was the last place where anyone was alive in a zombie apocalypse. And so you had all these complete idiots trying to survive while surrounded by thousands of undead corpses. Was it written by Charlie Brooker, wasn't it? I think it was, yes. Yeah, yeah. I really should watch that at some point. It's, I think it's on Netflix. Next question is from Yanto58. Do zombies attack other zombies? Because if everyone has been converted, what would they eat? Do zombies have infinite life, or will there come a time when they die? This kind of goes back to the other question. It depends on your zombie folklore. I mean, for 28 days... The zombies eventually starve to death because they, they, you know, they need to eat stuff. I would say if they're using energy, they'd have to take energy in. So eventually they would starve to death. Um, zombies attacking other zombies is one thing I've always thought about. Why would a zombie stop, stop attacking each other? It could be something to do with pheromones, which is a, a terrible explanation, but it could happen. Because you'd um, have to really restructure the entire nasal passage and everything associated with it. Because yeah. human sense of smell is terrible. When people start talking about human pheromones, as far as I know, there's never ever been any definitive proof that humans actually use pheromones for anything. So when people say, "Oh, you can, can release these pheromones to make yourself seem more attractive," whatever, it just it might work in lower lower primates or other animals that actually have the ability to smell stuff, unlike us who suck at it terribly. If someone ever can smell your pheromones, it means you really need a shower. <laughs> Uh, so what was what was the other part of that question? Uh, would they would they attack each other and would they die? So if they didn't have a stomach or anything like that, they should they should die. So going back to the Walking Dead, if they can't 
digest anything, then they should die. They also, of course, need to transport oxygen around their body to actually make the energy and stuff. So death would probably come. There were, one thing I did see about the Walking Dead series, I think it was on BuzzFeed, was saying about the number of zombies his group has killed and saying that there's, an, you know, a few of these people still left doing these sort of groups. They would have completely wiped out the American population in just over a year. So the zombie outbreak would be over. That was easy. Yeah, that was nicely done. Next question is from Sally LePage. What is the best way to fend off zombies during an attack? Push someone in f- behind you. Trip them up. That's actually a good answer. <laughs> I hope she remembers that next time <laughs> Next time I interview if there's a zombie outbreak. I'm going to trip her over. Yeah, uh, shoot for the head. Be friends with a farmer. I think it's sort of a 12-year-old boy's fantasy thing when you sort of sit in school not paying attention. Like, how would I survive a zombie outbreak? Is uh, I think what I would do is not be in my house where I am at the moment because it's sort of very easy to break into. I'd go to a high-rise building, like they did in 28 Days Later, actually. They're, you know, A high-rise building with one one entrance and loads of, loads of space upstairs. Barricade yourself off, I guess. And wear riot gear if it's available. Yeah, that's definitely. one thing. In The Walking Dead, they're all walking around in t-shirts, and it's like, for God's sake, cover up! You know, get some biker leathers or something on, yeah. something that you'd really have to chew through. Something thick, at least. Yeah. Next one is not a question. It's uh, from Miles Power. Look at his cold dead eyes. <laughs> it's uh, was that when I filmed the video, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a weekday. I was busy. I was at work. You know, I I, I get up early. I come back late. I'm tired. I, Not I, properly caffeinated. No. Oh no, that's probably the problem. Actually, too much caffeine, or uh, or perhaps I'm just soulless and heartless inside. I, it's hard to tell. Okay, I had one more question. It came in over the scienceofsarcasm.com website. It's from Rinny Sin. Uh, while I know that there are certain zombie-like pathogens transmitted from certain types of wasps to hosts. Uh, what I want to know is, would there ever be a risk of a pathogen of that nature mutating to the point where it would affect a human being? If so, how would it affect a human versus the smaller creatures that we can currently observe as being affected by it? Hmm. So I would say there is, there's always a possibility. Like, for example, if you went back 65 million years ago and there was a parasite that was attacking some small mammal and it just so happened to co-evolve with us, it would still be doing stuff if we hadn't killed it already so i'd 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 make the argument that uh caterpillars have quite a simple in inverted commas nervous system you know they're far less complicated than us with our massive brains and fancy spinal cords and even our immune system is different from theirs in quite a substantial way this is the wasp one isn't it yeah there's a wasp which actually stings these caterpillars but it doesn't sting it with venom it stings it... Well, maybe there's some vet paralyzing agent or something. But it's, it injects its eggs and a virus. Maybe you could tell us about that one. It's pretty cool. In a it's, horrifying kind yeah, of way. The best the best biology is in a slightly horrifying way, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, it uh, it injects its uh, pupa into the caterpillar and the, they, they, they use the caterpillar to grow up. But when it's sort of... By but grow up, do you mean eat a life from the inside out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Nature. You don't nature. have to whitewash it for this show. No, yeah, nature is terrifying in a lot of ways. It's very similar to sort of the xenomorph of aliens, where it sort of uses its host to gain the resources, like all parasites do. And it, uh, yeah, injects a number of larvae into into the caterpillar, and the caterpillar isn't best pleased about this. But then it sort of it develops a very odd behaviour. It'll start guarding the the, the wasp larva. I think once they've come out of the caterpillar, so the the caterpillar is injected with the larva, and then the larva come out at some stage. I'm not too sure how that happens. They, I think, they emerge um, in the pupate form. So that's sort of you know like a, a a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It goes into that sort of cocoon stage, similar to that. So they have two parts of the life cycle: one inside the caterpillar, and one when they then go outside the caterpillar. When they're outside the caterpillar. The caterpillar starts protecting these eggs from predators. There's um, uh, a type of beetle, I think it's called a horn shield beetle, I think, off the top of my head. And what the caterpillar does when it senses them coming, it starts thrashing violently, trying to knock them away. 
and there's there hasn't been a great deal of research on this, but the little bits that have been done have shown that the eggs that are protected by this caterpillar bodyguard do survive better than those that don't. But they're still not too sure how the wasp controls the um, the caterpillar. There is there's an idea that there's a virus that gets put in and starts controlling the caterpillars. Also, the caterpillar doesn't release all the larva. Uh, not all of them come out in the pupate form, so a few of them will stay inside the caterpillar. So this this other wasp could actually be inside, releasing things to control the caterpillar as well. Almost like the pod people or something. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, and there isn't no, not pod people, puppet master. I'm thinking of yeah. the wrong alien invasion movie. <laughs> there isn't a huge difference in life between us and caterpillars there is there is a big gulf it wouldn't it wouldn't all of a sudden come and a wasp wouldn't stab you and then you'd, you'd start you know, thrashing around that that wouldn't happen but over the course of many millennia and millions of years evolution could see fit to do anything well now that we're talking about the mind controlling aspect of this can we go back to one we mentioned earlier which was toxoplasmosis yeah Maybe you could just give my listeners a quick run-through of its life cycle and how it does what it needs to do. It's actually a, an animal, better than... It's not It's not a bacteria or a virus, it's a, a parasitic animal. It's called Toxoplasmosis gondii. It's probably best two things known about it, or maybe best three things I've known about it, is that up to a third of the world's population are probably infected. Lovely. Um, yeah, and I mean, it just depends where you're in the world. Um, if you're in South America, you're more likely to have one and two people infected. If you're in Europe or America, it's closer to about 10%. So, you know, it's a it's a sign of bad sanitation and bad healthcare and stuff like that. It's also a problem with people with immune systems that are depleted, such as people with AIDS and stuff. But it's other big thing is the fact that its definitive host is the common household cat. I actually sat an exam about this today for my, my supervisor's writing a parasitology course on uh, for his MSE students. He asked me to sit the exam just to see just to see if it was too easy or too hard. I passed, so it was too easy. It goes from cats out of their urine, I believe, and then typically its other host is rats or mice. And these rats or mice then start developing strange symptoms. They will begin to want to associate more with their predators being cats and other animals. And this means that the parasite is in some way changing their behavior or reducing their fear to their predators and the cat then eats the mouse or the rat and then the cat gets infected. So then the parasite has completed its life cycle. The problem is it can also infect humans, as I said. So Lots of humans have this infection, probably bought them from looking after mittens over there in the corner. And there's been a big question whether or not the parasite can have similar effects in humans. It's it's tedious, but there's you know there's there's a bit of evidence suggesting yeah humans actually when they're infected with this have a higher chance of schizophrenia, developing things like Alzheimer's. They also could explain the sort of <laughs> crazy cat lady syndrome, I suppose, is the best word for it. People who want to associate more with cats it could explain it i mean when you think about it cats are quite horrible animals um we invite them into our house i love cats i i had a cat for a while until i had to give it to my brother recently but um they yes i saw it on the league of nerds yeah for those of you who don't know uh james is also on another podcast which he co-hosts with miles power called the league of nerds they had a meet up in james's house and he was accosted by a cat yeah, it's impossible to stay away from her. She refuses to be left alone if you're in the house. So it's uh they are quite sociopathic. Yeah, which which is why I think I like them. Um I like dogs as well, but uh, you you know you know where you stand with a cat. You know if you fell down dead, it's going to eat you. <laughs> everyone thinks of dogs, you know, if I die in my house with my dog, my dog will go and woof with the mailman and get help and you know no your dog will probably eat you too but everyone everyone has this misconception so like if you fall down a well they'll go get yeah. the park ranger uh, see a cat would have pushed you down <laughs> you know we've covered all of the questions mm. let's see was there anything else I wanted to talk about on the pathogen side of it 
aside from the Kuru and Toxoplasmosis, is syphilis one? It's been known to have neurological symptoms. Yes, syphilis can drive you crazy. Um, so when you get tertiary syphilis, the, the spirochetes, uh, the, the bacteria that cause it, have got into your brain and they start degrading brain tissue. And this can ca- basically cause you to go mad quite quite understandably. If you, if you start losing parts of your brain, you will go insane. It's, syphilis is bizarre in a lot of ways. Um, we, we still don't really know when it arrived um, in human history. So a lot of people suggest that it came back from the New World because a lot of the a lot of the count, accounts of syphilis began to appear at this time. Also, it used to be far worse than it is now. People's skin faces used to slough off from them. And, you know, you'd, you'd get these massive boils and stuff from syphilis. And nowadays, I mean, it's not pleasant now. But, you know, if you if you had to choose between your skin melting away or having, uh, I think it's a small black rash. I'm not too sure with syphilis. You know, there's, there's, a, there's an obvious choice between the two. It's, it's almost just as deadly because it will still eventually develop into tertiary syphilis if you haven't gotten treatment. But the, the biggest problem is that we do have some evidence that syphilis was around before um, people started coming back and forward from the New World. So it's, it's still up in the air about where it actually came from. It would be very fitting if actually the New World did give us a very horrible pathogen as we gave them so many wonderful, <laughs> terrible diseases as well. It's still not really an even trade. I think we brought a few more. Yeah, it's not really fair, is it? <laughs> Other mind-altering pathogens. Now, there's a there's a very interesting um, body of work going on at the moment looking at the human microbiota. So this is all the different bacteria and stuff you have living within inside you, helping you basically survive. Because if you were completely sterile, of any kind of bacteria or anything, you would die quite quickly because you need bacteria to do all sorts of different things for your body. And there's been quite a lot of work showing quite a strong correlation between different types of microbiota and different diseases, like different cancers and different neurological diseases, such as um, Alzheimer's and schizophrenia. It seems if you have this certain microbiota, you're more than more likely to develop certain neurological diseases. Personally, I haven't been 100% convinced by any of these, but I am, I am erring on the side that there certainly could be something in there. There could also be a lot of misaligned information, but it, it does seem that more and more research we do shows to, it seems to show a stronger and stronger correlation. So all the sort of horrible neurological diseases and a lot of the cancers and a lot of the sort of immunological diseases like diabetes could be helped by having certain microbiota. Obviously, there's also a lifestyle risk with a lot of cancers and things like diabetes. If you eat too much sugar, you you will become diabetic. It could certainly be something in there. I remember there was an X-Files episode I saw in which Mulder and Scully were at this research station out in the middle of nowhere, and the scientists there had been infected by a strange fungus from an ice core they had dug up. And in this episode, it began altering their behavior, and then as the fungus was about to spore, it made them seek out other humans, so they could basically vomit all these spores up into their faces, because for whatever reason, these particular spores didn't really like being out in the air and they basically degraded after a couple of seconds. So you had to actually be around another human being. And the scary thing is that something like that actually exists in nature. Yeah, it's also very similar to an episode of Fringe, but we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. Um, the Yeah, there's the, 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 the cordyceps fungus, I think we, we, we will go with, cordyceps fungus. I'm not, I'm not too sure. Latin is not my thing. It's uh, it's a fungus which infects uh, mainly ants, I believe, um, and it is terrifying when you think about it. If 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 anything like this ever happened with humans, it would be it'd be horrific. Essentially, the fungus gets into an ant. The ant then um, proceeds to develop the fungus inside its body, and the ant will walk up to the a, very, a high point as it as it can find, and then release. The, the the spore will release by growing through 
the top of the, the ant's uh, neck and then just butt away and try and affect other things. It's it's terrifying. Yeah, I'm going to post some links in the show notes and in the video description of this. So don't click on them if you've eaten recently because I'm looking at oh, some of these pictures right now and it is just... Oh my goodness. Yeah. Or if you're an ant, stay away. No, don't... don't um, open, if you have an ant farm in your house, <laughs> just make sure you take your laptop into another room because yeah. you know, there could be riots in there. <laughs> If ants and uh, fungus have a, a pretty interesting thing going on. Ants actually farm fungus. I'm not sure if this is related to a species that they farm, but ants actually bring things like plant materials back to their nest sometimes to put onto a compost pile, which then helps the fungus grow, and then the ants eat the fungus. Oh. So they're not necessarily eating the, the plants and stuff they find. They're just feeding this fungus, which they then farm, which is brilliantly cool. I... I really hate fungus um i have a deep unabided fear and somewhat respect of the kingdom of fungus mainly because they sort of straddle that weird zone in between plants and animals i've seen fungus do things under the microscope which made me shudder and it's pretty much everywhere yeah you really it's... you should if you're listening you should really be glad that you can't see down to that scale because <laughs> just looking at yourself and at everything around you would freak you the hell out. Yeah, and they always, always grow on plates after a while in the lab as well. You always get these funguses. It seems to me that pathogens have a bit of a balancing act to pull off with regards to how fatal they are. Like, there Mm. seems to be a bit of give and take. Like, say, a cold isn't particularly fatal, but it does get around to a lot of people in that you're coughing over everything for three days straight, spreading it, but then you've got these other viruses and bacteria which are very aggressive and which will basically take over your entire system and kill you in a matter of days or weeks. Mm. And it's just it's an interesting trade off. It is, it is. It's not it's not a hundred percent all the time. If you look at it from the point of the pathogen, what a pathogen wants to do is reproduce, because that's all really evolution cares about, is making more of itself. The things that do that best go into the next generation best, obviously. And to do that, the, the bacteria or virus or even fungus, they need to get more nutrients. More nutrients equals more energy, more energy equals more reproduction. So to, to get that nutrients, they have to normally harm us in some way. So there, there tends to be a very strong relationship between how much a pathogen harms us and how sick we feel. And that also tends to mean how well it spreads to the next generation. But these things aren't, as I said, aren't always 100% linked because you could, have, you could have things that help the pathogen spread, like coughing, or that could be the, the host's immune system trying to remove the pathogen from the lung tissue. So... The things like raising the body temperature, that's not in the the pathogen's interest, that's in the host's interest. The host wants to reduce how efficiently the pathogen spreads. But in some cases, it is the bacteria or virus doing it. So in some cases, the bacteria actually tricks the immune system into increasing the body temperature so it can reproduce at its optimum. All these things are massively complicated in lots of different ways. It's all very, very cool. The example of the cold is a really good example of something that isn't, as you said, isn't particularly dangerous. I mean, almost everyone gets a cold at least once a year. And what annoys me most is people go out with colds. If there's, there's, this, there's this idea that if everyone at the slightest moment that they started feeling sick just sort of went, no, I'm going to stay home today, I'm not going to go to work, the, obviously the cold wouldn't be able to spread. So only people who had the cold and were still spreading it but weren't symptomatic, they didn't actually feel ill, would be able to spread the cold. So this would mean that over time, the cold would get less virulent. So it'd get to a point where actually the cold was just spreading around maybe to a few people, but they didn't actually feel sick at all. So it wasn't actually causing any problems. So we'd be selecting for a version of the cold that never actually became symptomatic. Yeah. It's a bit dangerous <laughs> because it's sort of, it's trying to second guess evolution as I, as I full well know from my, my PhD is a bad idea. <laughs> it's, I think Michael Crichton said it best that life finds a way. It's difficult. The idea is, isn't ridiculous in the least. So, okay, just finally before we get off this, there's another class of pathogens 
um, the opportunistic ones. They're basically like mm. the chavs of the disease world, where they won't <laughs> do anything by themselves, but when there's a gang of them and you're already vulnerable, they'll come yeah. in and kick you when you're down. Yeah. I was doing a basic bio- biology lab a few years ago. I was in like an intro to microbiology, where you had mm. to uh, culture some nasal swabs for yeah. staphylococcus. And most of the time, it's it's in there. Those of you listening, you have it up your nose right now. It's nothing to worry about. Unless you're sick with something else. Yeah. In which case, it causes staph infections. Now, we cultured them. And then we did the basic, what is it, antibiotic resistance test. We take these little tabs that have been soaked in various antibiotics. And you put them onto the different parts of the culture. And everyone's was penicillin resistant. Because penicillin's mm. been around so long, it's had plenty of time to adapt. But one person had a methicillin-resistant version. So it was, the, it was actually the MRSA that everyone lost their shit over about five years yeah. ago in the UK. That's um, that's actually quite a low number for people to have. It depends how many people you did. But I mean, I'd, I'd expect one in four people to have MRSA up the nose. Because it's spread that much. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it was ten years ago probably or not where you were doing them intro to micro so it probably been less back then but it's it's not that unusual to find it in someone's nose i remember when that mrsa scare first came out mm. like it was in the tabloids every couple of weeks yeah. and i don't know i think it was in ben goldacre's book bad science he looked back mm. at it and when one person was actually researching a story on all the stories themselves and the way it was handled they were talking to one of the journalists and she had said, oh yeah, we always sent our samples that our undercover people took from the hospitals to this one guy because he always gave positive results. He always yeah. found something. And so they went to see this person and it turned out it was some guy who didn't have any real credentials walking out of a kitchen sink set up in his garden shed who had been doing all these cultures and saying that he was finding MRSA yeah. and causing the entire national media to just freak out. Lose their shit about it, essentially, yeah. And it was all just down to one guy in his garden shed. Not just He wasn't being malicious, he just didn't know any no, better. No, he had, yeah, he had no idea what he was doing. Um, I think, didn't, didn't he, not to take down the tone of the story, didn't he commit suicide as well afterwards? I'm not sure, I hadn't heard that. I think he did. Now you've made um, me feel bad. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's related to the fact that yeah this came out or something else is going on but I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he oh no no uh, he didn't he didn't necessarily commit suicide he he drove into um, a tree essentially and it was sort of like it, it wouldn't have happened unless something else is wrong um, it was, there was no reason for him to, to, to right. crash his car but yeah it's so MRSA it, it, it is a problem it got blown out of proportion by the media for example, Stridia difficile, the C. diff bacteria, it's the related to the thing that gives you like uh, botulism poisoning and um, they used to make Botox from. That kills many more people in hospitals each year and that's becoming drug resistant as well. That's f- a far bigger problem. I find Botox so funny. I find it hilarious. <laughs> like most of the, you look at the people who are doing it and most of the time they're like anti-vaccine, anti-fluoride, yeah. organic diets... And then they take this product of botulism and stick it in their face. But it's organic. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre. I've, I mean, when I when you were at school, I was you learned about like the Victorians and stuff, and you think, oh yeah, they used to put lead on their face to to make themselves seem seem paler and whiter, and that was the the mark of attractiveness. And you sort of think, oh, bloody stupid Victorians, and you know why would they you know, put the, a poison all over their face and stuff to make themselves seem more pretty? Uh, yeah, Botox. We're, we're not much better, are we? Um, but yeah, uh, going back to C. diff is, is, is a bigger problem. Things like um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, the thing I work on day to day, if you've got cystic fibrosis, there's a good chance you will die of Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It's a bit like uh, HIV in a way that it doesn't... Cystic fibrosis doesn't kill you. It just makes you susceptible to a bunch of different things. If Pseudomonas aeruginosa doesn't kill you, Burkholderia sinicipatia will likely kill you, or Haemophilia influenza. There's, um, there's a whole bunch of different things. And these these are actual problems. Um, MRSA, again, is a problem, but it was just... It was the fact that it was... I think it was the fact that it was 
methicillin resistant and if you actually understand what that means that's quite terrifying the fact that we've got to a point where a bacteria that is in most people's noses has developed to such a point where it's resistant to well one of our best antibiotics is is pretty scary i've heard a very scary phrase coming up more often now is the post-antibiotic age it's a big problem i'm not an expert on it and my opinion is that we are advancing it we will get to the point where most antibiotics have had their day but we are advancing with other treatments we're doing phage therapy and stuff like that whether or not that's enough only time will tell um there's also the question of actually if if we stopped using a certain antibiotic or a certain class antibiotic would resistance disappear because to maintain a resistant gene is costly to the bacteria if we stopped using these antibiotics to treat things and stop using them in in animals which by the way is um I don't think it happens in the UK anymore. You not you no longer give animals antibiotics, and the, the FDA recently approved measures to reduce the amount of antibiotics going into cattle and uh, other livestock. So if we stop using certain antibiotics, would we get to the, back to the point actually where most of the pathogens are no longer resistant to it? The problem then becomes is you have to stop treating people who need the antibiotic, and is that is that ethical? It's a question of, do you let, let's say, 100 people die today to save a million 50 years down the line, or 10 million? I think, luckily, it's not my decision to make. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants that to be their decision. No. Antibiotics probably wouldn't do anything for zombies, zombieism, if it was a virus, they at w- least. They would in, they would in uh, Walking Dead, because you wouldn't die oh, yes, from, from the bite. Yes. But no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't help with viral infections. There are a few cases of viral infections where antibiotics will help but that's not because they're treating the virus they're treating um for example hiv if you get a bacterial infection you should take antibiotics if you have um possibly i should say this hasn't been proven either if you have um a particularly nasty version of flu it might cause something called a cytokine storm and the cytokine storm seems to only happen if you're co-infected with a bacteria so if you take the antibiotics to treat the bacterial infection you won't get the cytokine storm you'll still have the flu but you won't die from a cytokine storm i think i may have just given a bit of bad information about people going to the doctors and saying can i have i heard a guy on the internet saying antibiotics can actually help if you have a viral so what we'd have we'd have to either work on a vaccine or let's take a situation from one of the movies uh 28 Mm weeks later the sequel to oh yeah yeah 28 days later in that there was a woman at the start who was bitten who became infected but who do not did not become fully symptomatic Mm. now i know in cases like ebola the only treatment available is an anti-serum from someone who has previously survived ebola infection so what exactly is an anti-serum and how would it work so an anti-serum tends to be you are given someone else's antibodies, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sure my immunology friends tomorrow will hit me if I tell them I said this. Um, so if you if you survived Ebola, your body at some point probably produced antibodies to that virus. An anti-serum would be they, they spin down your blood and get collect these antibodies and then give the person now suffering it these antibodies and then those antibodies will attach to the virus. Now, the thing I can't quite remember here is whether or not your body recognizes the antibodies and says, ah, antibodies are attached to something, let's go and kill whatever's there. Or does your body go, hang on, where have those antibodies come from? Let's attack those antibodies. And in the process, by attacking those antibodies, they actually kill the virus as well. I can't remember. It may be a mix of the two. Because if you give someone someone else's antibodies, your body will go, those aren't my antibodies, and attack them as well. It's one of the cool things about the human immune system. It, it is so, or any immune system, it's so highly adapted to go, ah, oh, that doesn't belong here, kill it, kill it, kill it. With, with things like big outbreaks as well, there tends to be these emergency plans. I know Australia has quite quite a cool one. So when when they were worried about the swine flu, was it swine flu or bird flu? One of the one of the other one. I think it's bird flu. Their plan was they had this group of immunologists and biologists that they had picked out throughout the country. And if some horrible pathogen emerged and got into Australia, these people would be collected, picked up by 
any means they could and flown to Tasmania. Tasmania would be completely shut off and these people would be then put to work to start developing treatments and all sorts of you know, vaccinations and ways of helping. Part of the plan was things like Sydney. If you were in Sydney, that's it. No, Sydney's gone. Sydney is considered lost. This doesn't mean that everyone in Sydney would die. It just means they would not waste their time trying to get people in or out of Sydney or quarantine Sydney because it was just impossible to do. There's just too many people, too many variables. They would just go, no, we'll deal with other fires first. Yeah, Adelaide, we're just going to firebomb it because we never liked those people anyway. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> I know the CDC took some flack because... Kind of as a joke, they actually have an information page on what to do in case of a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and, you know, it's basic survival stuff for when there's a large outbreak of any kind, really. When you peel back the pop culture stuff, it's yeah. basic stuff like clean water, lots of supplies, don't go outside unless you need to, to try to avoid crowded places. Yeah. But, like, how would a zombie virus actually propagate in a zombie apocalypse? Because you would think with the slow zombies it would actually be pretty difficult because they're so slow and it would be fairly easy to see it coming and it has to be yeah. done through direct physical contact i think it'd have to get to a certain threshold of numbers once you get enough zombies trying to kill someone then they'd eventually start spreading it but if it was so if it's, again if it's like the 28 days later thing where it's an instant change into a zombie that's probably actually going to be worse for the zombie pathogen because all of a sudden everyone's like oh crap it's a zombie run away if it's a slow burn where you become infected over a longer time that's more likely to spread the disease yes because remember i haven't watched the movie but i heard someone say in world war z the incubation mm. period was in a matter of like 12 seconds yeah and it would just flare up burn through an entire city but it wouldn't really get out because when you look at things like sars and that those are spread mainly through air travel. You can see them hop continents via yeah. air passengers who contract it and they don't become symptomatic until four or five days later when they're back home. But if it was an incubation period of seconds, well, you'd never get past airport security. No, you'd be, you'd be ill drunk on the floor too quickly, so they, they'd notice you quick enough. It's uh, the, the, the perfect zombie virus or pathogen would yeah would have a slow incubation step where you become infective would be airborne and probably mimic something like the common cold um so next time you're on the bus and you see someone sneezing just think they could have be starting off a zombie apocalypse uh, but having to bite someone to spread the disease is actually quite an ineffective way of spreading it we know this from rabies like if rabies is spread by biting zombie outbreaks wouldn't occur that quickly it wouldn't occur at all almost because there's, there'd be a population that you could say ah that that's a rabid person or a rabid dog and you go okay well, we should stay away from there or tie them up or all sorts of things the only way uh, rabies actually exists is because it lives in things like bats which don't die from it they can just spread it from population to population it has a natural reservoir that doesn't die from the infection well, rabies has like one good point and one incredibly bad point the bad point I think, is that once you become symptomatic, that's basically it. I don't think that... I'm, I'm taking this, I think, from a SciShow video, so if if I'm wrong, blame Hank Green. Hank Green? <laughs> but um, no, I know he had said, he had said and I had, didn't confirm, and I've got a feeling you're about to give out to me, that it had a 100% kill rate once you became symptomatic. No, it doesn't. Okay. Um, Damn you, has... Hank Green! Yeah. You have misled and me for the so... last time, so... <laughs> so let's say you had a million people who had been infected with rabies. We know of at least four who have survived. The The first person we know is a girl called Jenna Geese, um, or Geese, who, when she was walking home one day from church, uh, she came across a bat that she thought was injured, and she picked it up. And the, uh, the bat bit her, and she obviously let it go, and the bat went away. And over the next few days, she started developing symptoms that were sort of flu-like. Um, and they got quite serious, and so her family took her to the hospital. And the hospital said, you know, this doesn't 
this doesn't quite seem like the flu. So they ran a bunch of tests and came back negative, and then someone decided to test it for rabies. This isn't a very common thing, because there's very few actual cases of rabies in the United States. I think something like 30 a year or something. The rabies test came back positive, and she'd already begun to show the symptoms that, as Hank Green said, basically mean you've become infected, you're going to die. With rabies, you can give a, a late vaccination. So this means after the person's been bitten or been infected with rabies, they can still be saved by giving the vaccination because the vaccination works quicker than the virus does. The virus takes quite a long time to reproduce itself in your nervous system. And the vaccine comes in quick enough and your body says, oh, here's something that shouldn't be here, attacks it, and then sees the virus in your immune system and goes, aha, there's rabies that's attacked that as well. Yeah, that was actually the good point I was about to get to before I completely yeah. fluffed it by listening to Hank Green. <laughs> um, he's not wrong, but it's um, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite new. Um, so it's a ninety nine point so, nine nine something yeah, kill yeah. rate. Well, possibly uh, there's, there's more to the story, unfortunately. Um, as well, not unfortunately. So Jenna Geese survived because of a different treatment she didn't get the rabies actually, actually she might have got the rabies vaccination as well did she but... become a vampire no she didn't unfortunately Damn. <laughs> um she she was given something called the milwaukee protocol which is by a a doctor i believe called rodney Woolber. i may maybe his wrong name is rodney something and he he basically said okay what we're going to do if we don't treat her she is going to die no one has ever survived rabies beyond this point that we know of so i have a treatment which i don't know if it's going to work i don't actually have particularly good evidence to show it's going to work but we can try it so dr i think wilbur again might be wrong convinced jenna's family that what he was going to do was going to put her into a chemically induced coma effectively separating her nervous system and shutting it off from her body. And they gave her a bunch of antiviral drugs as well to help fight the virus. I think it was 14 days later, she was still alive. She was uh, in a very bad state, and they, they resuscitated her. They washed out the chemically induced coma, and their assumption was that they'd given her immune system enough time to develop its own resistance to the rabies virus. Because what rabies seems to do is it doesn't actually cause that much damage. It doesn't cause particularly big physical damage. It just sends the brain into overdrive and kills it by exhaustion, it seems. She fully recovered. She had several years of a neurological deficit, but nothing, you know, not... She still knew who she was. Um, she's regaining almost every sort of indicator of good brain function. She can speak. She can remember things she's she finished her university course she now absolutely loves bats which is brilliant and she doesn't seem to have had any long-term horrible side effects it's not like you know she's not a vegetable for lack of a better word she's she has i think she still has a bit of slurred speech but she's getting better year by year she's she's having to relearn a lot of things like how to tie shoelaces and you know how to hold a knife and fork but they are getting better and better so no superpowers yeah, no, no bat. Why does that powers. never happen in real life? What, one day, one day it'll happen, I'm sure. Um, so this protocol's been used several times now. Uh, I think it's been tried 12 times and only worked three other times apart from Jenna's. But if your chance of surviving is, let's say, 20% with this protocol or 100% certain death, I know which one I would take. There's another kick to the story in the fact that when people have examined populations that have a high likelihood of coming into contact with rabies such as indigenous tribes in the amazon they find that when they look at the antibody titer of these people they seem to have been exposed to the rabies virus time and time again and developed an immunity so this means that actually possibly rabies isn't always a hundred percent deadly these people slowly develop a resistance to it by having small exposures to it which is essentially like a vaccination so there might be quite a few people walking around today who are resistant to rabies without not really knowing that they are because they've come into contact with the rabies virus from bats or something like that and or a dog has given it to them and they didn't actually get treatment and they never developed rabies because there was no point where they said, you know, I feel like crap, I'm, I might be dying of rabies. They, they just fought it off naturally. So we're not actually too sure how bad it is. It does seem that if you get bitten by a rabid dog, one that's foaming from the mouth, the chance of you getting it is near enough 
Although, you were just talking there about the indigenous tribes, and I was thinking, well, that would be an opportunity to develop something similar to the anti-serums we were talking about earlier, where you could transfer it. But then, given the low rates at which people are infected in the general population, and the fact that there's a vaccine which can already treat most of those people, there's not really that much point for a pharmaceutical company to go pumping millions of dollars into researching and developing it. No, I mean, it's one of these really nice things that, as I said, with the vaccine we have. I mean, imagine if we didn't have that vaccine. You know you get bitten by this dog and 14 days later, you know you're going to die. That That's it. You know, you've got you've got a death certificate. You might as well write out your death certificate then and there. And it's we're just, we are very lucky that it takes so long for itself to re- reproduce, that we can actually treat it with a vaccination in between. That's why I often think that, you know, as much flack as vaccination get. They are among the greatest things we've ever developed. Well, I think we've covered just about everything we can for tonight, so it's time to move on to the quiz. Oh dear. Today's Science of Sarcasm quiz is brought to you by the anti-vaccine community, eroding herd immunity and putting infants at unnecessary risk since 1996. The anti-vaccine community, because blogs and peer-reviewed research are basically the same thing. I've got a list of 10 pathogens here. Okay. They are either a virus, a fungus, or a bacterium. Oh, crap. And it's a quick fire <laughs> round. Okay. Okay, so here they go. Answer as quickly as you can, and I'll tell you what your score is at the end. Okay. Epstein-Barr. Virus. Clostridium difficile. Bacteria. Legionella nemophila. <laughs> Parainfluenza. Oh, uh, oh, parainfluenza. Uh, uh, I want to say bacteria. Cryptococcus neoformans. That's a fungus. Hemorrhagic fever. Uh, virus. Aspergillus fumigatus. Uh, fungus. Haemophilus influenza. Bacteria. Pneumocystis carini. Uh, fungus. Bordetella pertussis. Uh, that is, that's whooping cough, so that's a bacteria. Okay, you got 9 out of 10. Oh, which one did I get wrong? Parainfluenza is a virus. Oh, I wasn't sure, because, like, yeah, he, like, there's another influenza one that's a bacteria. Oh. Well, that's going to be a pretty, see, I'm going to do one of these quizzes from now on for each of my guests <laughs> in their field of expertise, and you have just set a pretty high bar at 9 out mm. of 10. And I win a prize after a year. I will Pontiac see. Or Cadillac. <laughs> I will see what I can do. Because I know Miles is coming on at some point oh, yeah. in the next month or so. So you've set a pretty high bar for your co-host to beat. Yeah, and, good. And as we were discussing, <laughs> League of Nerds is James's podcast, and that will be linked below, as well as the particular episode which we discussed about the GMOs. But yeah. that is just about all we have time for in this episode. But before we go, James, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find more about your work and how they can follow you online? Sure. So um, there's several ways you can follow me online. Uh, there's my YouTube channel, which is Jim the Evo. Uh, I do a series on the history of infection where I talk about different bacteria, viruses, all sorts of things about how they evolved and what impact they've had on society. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's James R. Gurney. Um, yeah there's also the league of nerds podcast which i co-host with uh, miles power there's you can follow that on twitter you can also follow that on youtube there's also a facebook page a history of infection uh where i post things that don't make into the video sometimes papers articles and it's also probably an easier way to get hold of me than youtube nowadays i think that's it <laughs> Well, thanks, James, for coming on today. And if you listeners have enjoyed the episode, make sure to rate it, share it, or leave a review. Until next time, this is the Science of Sarcasm.